Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I've taken some time off this summer. Uh, I've turned over the Monday podcast to Will Salatan and Amanda Carpenter. You know, once again, thank you for filling in. But we are back. It is after Labor Day. It is uh, after the anniversary of 9-11. And so feels like we are re-engaging with the dysfunctional world. Donald Trump is mysteriously in Washington, D.C. this morning. I'm not going to spend any time speculating about what that's ba- uh, what, what that is about. Maggie Haberman's uh, new book is uh, leaking out, uh, suggesting that Trump told folks that he would not be leaving the White House. He was just going to he was just going to stay there. Meanwhile, the Republicans appear to be getting a little bit of cold feet on pushing anti-abortion measures. There is a new poll out showing that uh, maybe the talk about semi-fascism is not necessarily overblown. And, of course, we have this lightning counteroffensive in Ukraine. So, um, first of all, w- welcome back, Will, or I guess, you know, hey, it's good to be back with you, Will. You Charlie, missed me, right? It, we totally missed you. You know, <laughs> you know what we, ha- in your absence, we had a terrible, terrible shortage of expletives. We, I don't think Amanda and I used a single expletive in the entire time, but now we got you back. Is this the new normal? Are you, are you saying that that is what I bring to the table here? (laughs) That and a thousand other things, by the way, congratulations. I saw the photos of your beautiful new grandchild and you were at a family wedding. It sounds like you, you had a wonderful and eventful summer. We did. It was a wonderful and eventful summer. And, and I had very high hopes for how the summer would play out. And they, they actually, weirdly enough, exceeded all my uh, expectations. So it was really wonderful. And, uh, you know, grandbaby is doing great. Uh, French grandkids are back in Angoulême and starting school today. So they actually missed a little bit of school, but I think their trip to Washington, D.C. and to uh, Mequon, Wisconsin was, was, was educational. And, and of course, uh, married off another son. So, yeah. uh, so, Will, where should we start? To, how can we, you know, start anywhere else? than what is going on with Ukraine. And could we have a little bit of a flashback to Tucker Carlson? I am not sure whether Fox News uh, actually markets Tucker is always right t-shirts, um, but m- perhaps they might want to you know, place a call to their marketing department because you know, as we watch Ukraine push back a defeated Russian army you know, throughout southern and, uh, and, and eastern Ukraine, let's take a moment to remember Tucker Carlson's analysis of the war. Now Joe Biden is calling for an unconditional surrender from Vladimir Putin. Here's the weird thing. By any actual reality-based measure, Vladimir Putin is not losing the war in Ukraine. He is winning the war in Ukraine. And Joe Biden looks at that and says, we won't stop until you proffer an unconditional surrender. This isn't bad policy. This is nuts. This is just nuts. So, Will, thoughts about Tucker's powers of prognostication? You know, first of all, one of the, it's hard to convey this clip. First, this is two weeks ago. This is just yeah. like a week before this latest offensive. Which makes it better. Right. And speaking of offensive, Carlson has this wonderful way of projecting certainty about things about which he knows nothing. And in this it's kind case- of a brand. It's, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Like people who watch Tucker Carlson, what they're getting is is this absolute confidence. The other side are idiots. Here's the absolute truth, you know, and- it's very rare that you get this moment when the total BS, I got, you know, Charlie, I'm going to have to get back in the expletive habit. This total bullshit that Carlson has been peddling about Ukraine gets falsified immediately, like within a week. So what he's spreading, the idea that Russia 
is inevitably going to win this war and that the West needs to just accept that is obviously propaganda. And the propaganda has a purpose. It is to demoralize the West and, and to, you know, help his buddies in, in Russia, right? He's the, the Chinese are the real enemy. Therefore, we should knuckle under in Ukraine. So it was very important to break that myth, to break the myth of the inevitability of Russian victory. And the Ukrainians have done that. They have taken back over a thousand square miles of their country in like a week. It's an amazing pace. And it's important both because the Ukrainians are showing the world what they can do when they get the weapons. So now they can say, give us more weapons. And because it shows that the Russian army is fundamentally fragile and weak. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I try to avoid irrational exuberance or, as you know, wish casting, uh, to use an overused uh, phrase, but this certainly, you know, smells and tastes like victory. And again, there's important caveats. This is not going to bring an end to the war. Um, this is going to continue to, to go on. But a week ago, we were talking about what a long slog it was. And now we have this lightning offensive, which is one of the most dramatic offensive counteroffensives we've seen since World War II. But also, this was a very skillful campaign that was designed and executed. I mean, you know, it, it maximized the impact of these weapons systems, but also their tactics, their morale, uh, the aggressiveness. And as you point out, the incredible fecklessness of the Russian army all on display right now. And you can tell how bad it is because the Russian media is in full doom and gloom and finger pointing. And you can tell that there's a lot of anxiety. Uh, I, I find these clips from Russian state television to be quite remarkable. The palpable sense of, of alarm. I mean, they're they're not pretending that it's not happening, that, but they're they're trying to find a way to spin it and it is not a pretty situation. No, uh, for the Russians, it's not. And and Charlie, I can't speak for you or anyone else, but I have to express some guilt about this. I had stopped paying attention to Ukraine, right? It, it was it looked like it was a stalemate or the Russians were taking the Donbass and it just looked like nothing was happening. And I moved on to other things. So, you know, in the absence of American interest in this war and Western interest in this war, you could end up with a void in which we stop supporting the Ukrainians and we stop sending weapons and we're like, oh, well, we lost that one. And it's a tribute to the Ukrainians that in this lightning attack, they've proven that they can do something with the weapons and they've sort of revived interest in the West that we need to help them. I'm reminded yeah. I was watching the US Open this weekend tonight. Sorry for the sports analogy, but when a player, you know, plays a good point in tennis, Part of what they do in New York in the U.S. Open is get the crowd into it. Hey, hey, mm -hmm. you know, get, get, and that helps them. So this is a, not the greatest analogy in the world, but the Ukrainians needed to do something to show the West, hey, we are a worthwhile investment, you know, help us. And in this case, they don't need, just need applause. They need, they need arms. So I'm glad that we have supplied them with arms in the absence of American attention, and we desperately need to supply them with more. You're right in terms of just the, the narrative, because up until this weekend, really, you know, the focus had been on the looming energy crisis in Europe as a result of, uh, of Russian cutoff of, of energy supplies. And the, you know, the phrase is that Vladimir Putin is weaponizing winter. And, you know, there's increasing alarm in this country about you know, what is the political fallout going to be in Europe as we go into the winter. The good news is that uh, public opinion polls continue to show strong support for Ukraine, even in places like like Germany. So that that is positive. But the other you know, big question is how long will American resolve last? We have people like uh, Ohio Senate candidate J.D. Vance, 
And it's worth reminding us that he said, you know, quite frankly, I just don't care what happens to Ukraine. We know what uh, the buzz is in MAGA world. And in Vladimir Putin's calculation, he is thinking that if he waits this out, he will see European resolve begin to waver and perhaps uh, the United States government shifting. Because does anyone actually think that a restored Donald Trump would have the same sort of aggressive support for Ukraine that we saw from Joe Biden? Yeah, and it's, Trump is a problem. The current Republican Party is a problem. The Republican Party, which historically stood for you know strong national defense and an active role for America and the world, has lately just been talking about the economy. And the economy is an appropriate concern. But when you hear Kevin McCarthy and these other Republicans just talking about the high gas prices and not talking about defending the Ukrainians, they are basically helping Putin in his campaign to make you know, Americans sick of the gas prices and just, can we get this over with? If we would just reopen the world to Russian oil, that would help, you know, the Europeans, it would help the Americans, it would help our pocketbooks. It would just screw the Ukrainians. So it was very important for the Ukrainians to do a blitzkrieg, to do something to demonstrate that uh, the war is worth the sacrifice. And Vladimir Putin's response to uh, all of these defeats, of course, was uh, more terror. Uh, they attacked power stations, other infrastructure yesterday, and there were you know widespread outages across Ukraine. And I, I thought that uh, President Zelensky's response was uh, was telling. I mean, th this this guy was not a flash in the pan. He continues to be able to rally his country and the world. And you, you saw his statement. He goes, and this here's a rough translation of it. it you know, he, addressing himself to the Russians. Do you still think we are one people? Do you still think you can scare us, break us, force us to make concessions? Don't you really get it? Don't you understand who we are, what we stand for, what we are about? Read my lips. Without gas or without you? Without you. Without light or without you? Without you. Without water or without you? Without you. And he goes on. Cold, hunger, darkness, and thirst are not as frightening and deadly for us as your friendship and brotherhood but history will put everything in place. So once again, you see that that defiance uh, of what's happening. And look, I mean, before we get too far ahead, I mean, Admiral Stavridis tweeted out this morning, and we've had him as, as a guest on, on the show. First of all, he said, you know, the Ukrainian offensive is accelerating. Russian morale is weakened. Putin will have a hard time reestablishing dominance. Is this a pivot in the war? Quite possibly. But then he says, no, look, despite all of our enthusiasm, we need to remember Putin still has a lot of cards to play, chemical weapons, amphibious assaults, attacks on critical infrastructure like water, assistance from other pariah states like North Korea. This one is far from over. So uh, again, Ukraine is winning this, this war. It is having a tremendous worldwide impact, including sort of the refutation of you know, this, this sort of growing belief that the future belonged to the authoritarians, the democracies were too weak. So all of that is is good, but th this thing's not over yet. No, no. At, look, Stavridis is obviously right. Um, the Russians are stronger in, in aggregate. But Charlie, who was stronger between the United States of America and Afghanistan? I mean, oh, yeah. here's what I think. Empires are strong. Superpowers are strong. But over time, defense wins. If you are defending your own country, sure. you, you just care more than the other guy. And I think that statement that you read from Zelensky is beautiful. And part of what it expresses is, look, this is our own land. This is our own country. These are our people. You can take away our gas. You can take away our electricity. But we will, we're not going to leave. We got nowhere to go. So the Russians can go. They can go home. The Ukrainians can't. So the Ukrainians have more resolve. And one of the fascinating indices from this lightning attack from the Ukraine the Ukrainians is not just the amount of territory. 
I mean, as Stavridis points out, it's accelerating. It's, it's, it's moving incredibly fast and it's moving incredibly fast because the Russians are not particularly fighting. They're fleeing and they're right. leaving, they're leaving behind lots and lots of equipment. And all of this is a sign that of a low morale on the Russian side, which means even if they have numbers, that those numbers, if they're not backed by the will to fight because it's not their country, they're going to lose. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and you could get a sense that this, uh, the collapse of morale is cascading. That I, I heard somebody, I can't remember who it was, who said, you know, fleeing soldiers, there's a, multi, there's a multiplying effect of this, that, that they spread panic, they spread demoralization with them. And right now, I think, and I don't know whether this was tongue in cheek or not, you know, the, the number one supplier of tanks to the Ukrainian army the Russians. <laughs> they're just they're just leaving this behind. Okay, so we have a lot of other things to talk about. Let me take a deep breath here. Okay, so yesterday was the uh, 21st anniversary of 9-11. And, I, I, and I'm going to bounce this off you because this is a completely subjective reaction. Um, I have continued to marvel at the, the persistence and the endurance of the feelings about 9-11. And I still have them. I mean, I, I still am riveted by it and thinking back and flashing back to it. But I will tell you this, that yesterday, and maybe this is just personal, for the first time, this is for the first time in two decades, I had a feeling that, you know, it feels like a long time ago right now. It now, for the first time, feels like we are have moved so far beyond the moment of 9-11, the politics of 9-11, that sense of unity we had after 9-11, the way that 9-11 shaped our politics and our entire culture for, it felt like, for more than a decade. But that that era seems to me past. I, and I never actually felt that way. And, and, and I'm, I'm not proud of this, and I'm not pushing it, because I'm, I'm very much in the never forget you know, school of thought about all that. We never forget this. We always acknowledge this. But for the first time, it felt like very much something from the past rather than something that is shaping us at the moment. Maybe because, I don't know, what do you think? Well, maybe because it has been succeeded by our own crises. It has been succeeded by other things. We have other obsessions. We have other threats. We have other concerns. And I'm not trying to diminish it, but I, I, I have not felt that way before yesterday. What do you think? I don't think you should feel bad about this at all. I think it is natural, and in part, it's a sign of success. I mean, when, you know, we we have m much less of that kind of radical Islamic terrorism than we than we did, and we've done a better job of preventing it. But Charlie, if you put this in the context of history, when nine eleven became the overwhelming story to, in America that we've been we've been attacked, it replaced previous attacks. It replaced mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And it's no worse today to say 9-11 is in the past than it was on 9-11 to say Pearl yeah. Harbor is in the past. So you're right. Subsequent events have replaced it. And that is totally natural. That's how history works. So one, one thing that I that I came across yesterday and I, and I tweeted it out was something that I have to admit that I had never seen before. Um, look, Alex Jones has been around for a long time and he and he has made a career out of spewing toxic bullshit. But I have to admit that this one was a little bit startling. Um, this is a soundbite from, and I don't even know what show he was doing. This is a this is an Alex Jones who actually has hair and weighed about 50 pounds less than he does right now. But this is September 12, 2001. You can remember what you were thinking and doing the day after 9-11. I think we all can remember what we were thinking and feeling back then. This is a, it's about a 49-second soundbite from Alex Jones the day after the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon 
blaming Israel, because here's a reminder for the conspiracy theorists, it's always about the Jews, and it was for Alex Jones the day after 9-11. Let's play it. Israel calls the Palestinians goyim or cattle or dogs or subhuman. They keep them on concentration camps. I got video of them taking Palestinian women's tomatoes they grow and breaking their water containers and stealing. That, that's why you have this crap. And Jews. our children are going to die. We're going to get nuked because of this. Iran's got the nukes now. Syria. We're going to have nuclear war because Israel likes to go around bombing everybody. I'm yeah. sorry. It's just the yeah. facts. Just the fact. And Israel absolutely is beside itself with joy right now. They are talking about how they're going to blow everything up, how they're going to attack everybody, and guess who's going to get bombed because of it? So, Will, what do you think? It's grotesque, as most of what Alex Jones says is. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated, not so much by the anti-Israel angle, which is gross, but by this idea that the terrorists are the ones who impose the consequences. This is the root of weakness. So the Israelis pissed off the terrorists and the terrorists attacked us. So we have to appease the terrorists. This mentality is still happening today. It's not happening in the context of, you know, Islamic terrorism. It's happening in the context of Russia. Like, what did we do to piss off Putin? You know, what could we do to have a better relationship with Russia so that it won't go around attacking countries? So we're seeing this same mentality in the right wing of America. And it always has to be stood up against. See, my main reaction was, okay, so Alex Jones is who he is, and we've said this over and over again, you know, the, the, the obsession that conspiracy theorists have with the Jews and the, you know, protocols of the elders of Zion and all of that. But the really grotesque thing is not just Alex Jones blaming Israel for 9-11 the day after, as opposed to, you know, venting his anger at Al-Qaeda and Saudi Arabia, etc. It's the fact that... Alex Jones remained a player in right-wing media, that, that Alex Jones played a role in the rise of Donald Trump, that, that, that Alex Jones still was able to not only, quote-unquote, survive this kind of vile anti-Semitism and, and conspiracy mongering, and then, you know, going through everything he did in Sandy Hook, but that he was able to get millions of people to follow him, and that, that right-wing America— and the right-wing media was willing to tolerate him for so many years. I mean, you look at that back then, you go, okay, this guy's a nut job. He's a fringe character. He's just made himself more fringy. He really has, you know, disgraced himself. And yet, he was just getting started. I mean, you, you think about now, in retrospect of 21 years, and you realize how dangerous Alex Jones would be. But, but I have to tell you, no one could ever have imagined that Alex Jones would be as influential, that he would be embraced by a future Republican nominee for president and president of the United States, and that people like Tucker Carlson would actually, you know, snicker and, you know, say how much more credible Alex Jones is than other outlets. You know, his survival is, it's really stunning. It is. And, you know, Charlie, you, you brought up not just the, this crazy rant about Israel, but Sandy Hook, which is the more recent version of the same thing. And, it, it kind of, it does illustrate that public figures just don't pay the price that they used to pay right. for saying crazy, deranged things. And I, it does make me wonder whether this is a consequence of a shift in our culture where instead of following public figures because of what they stand for, what they represent, what they say, your people are following them because of their enemies. Who are they? 
who are these people against? So you can say crazy stuff about Israel or about Sandy Hook, but as long as you hate the left, I'm with you. No, I think that is that is very much the root cause of all of this. So fast forward a little bit. So while I was gone, Joe Biden gives the speech about, uh, you know, MAGA fascism and semi-fascism. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing about whether he should have done that or whether that was too partisan. But you highlighted this morning what I thought was a, just a truly extraordinary result from the new Axios Ipsos poll, where 42% of Republicans agree that, and people need to listen to the language here, agree that strong, unelected, unelected leaders are better than weak elected ones. And 42% of Democrats agree that presidents should be able to remove judges who de whose decisions go against the national interest. So talk to me about what that poll tells you. And then I, I see that you're getting a lot of blowback from uh, progressive Twitter followers who are saying that, well, this is both sidesism. You know, only one side is engaged in authoritarianism. So what, what does it tell you that 42% of Americans like the idea of a strong unelected leaders and 42% of Democrats think the president should be able to fire judges who make decisions they don't like? It's fascinating. I mean, it's yeah. horrifying and it's fascinating. So just, just to, I want to be clear because I quoted what, what, you know, what was mm -hmm. on the, the poll graphic in Axios. Here are the exact statements. Quote, it is better to have a strong unelected leader than a weak leader who is elected by the people. 42% of Republicans agreed with that statement. 31% of Democrats, bad, but not as bad. On the other side, the president, quote, the president of the United States should be empowered to remove judges when their decisions go against the national interest. 42% of Democrats agreed with that statement, 29% of Republicans. Okay, both statements are really dangerous. It's bad that Republicans agreed with the first. It's bad that Democrats agreed with the second. But it really dismayed me, the response that I got on Twitter from people who I otherwise respect on the left, who were basically like, oh, you're both sidesing this. Mm -hmm. The real problem is on the right. That's where the fascists are. People, the reason that pollsters collect this kind of data is to send you a message about reality. And the reality they're showing you is this problem is not exclusive to the right. It's different, but it's not like people on the left are all wonderful civil libertarians. Clearly, there is an appetite for tossing aside the judiciary when the judiciary stands in the way of what progressives think is the right policy. That is really dangerous and progressive progressive elites, progressive intellectuals need to pay attention to that and acknowledge it. I agree with you. I mean, obviously there's a little asymmetry here because no one actually thinks that Joe Biden is going to try to fire any federal judge. That's just simply not going to happen. On the other hand, you have Donald Trump uh, giving speeches at his rallies where he goes out of his way to praise dictators like President Xi. His admiration for authoritarians like Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin is no secret, and it's not a one-off. He really has a you know fundamental admiration for people who are unelected um, and 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 rule with an iron fist. I mean, this is this whole iron fist thing which uh, clearly resonates with him and with millions of his of his supporters. So now we're finding out, by the way, that from Maggie Haberman's book, that he was telling people that he was just simply not going to leave the presidency. Again, part of this is not surprising at all, right? Because we, this is the whole January 6th thing. What was that really about? But I don't know how you feel about it. It's still shocking to hear that this report that I'm just not going to leave 
you know, Maggie Haberman's new book reveals that Trump was vowing to stay in the White House. So what do you make of that, Will? Well, among other things, it helps me make sense of why Trump took all those boxes to Mar-a-Lago. He, why hmm. did Trump have the presidential records? It's, it's because this guy thought that the presidency still belonged to him. So he didn't want to leave. Yeah. Right. I'm not yeah. going to leave. They can't make me. Eventually, he does leave. He gets on the plane and he goes. But he's like, well, I'm just going to take my stuff with me. And by my stuff, he clearly thought that included presidential documents, top secret classified documents. I think it's a very simple explanation for what happened with those records. It is that Trump, he didn't want to leave. If he had to leave, he was going to take the stuff with him. The government comes and says, hey, you got to give us that stuff back. That's dangerous classified documents. And he just drags his feet like, hey, it's my stuff. I'm going to make it your problem. How are you going to get it from me? Then they have to send agents in to get it from him because he doesn't cough this stuff up and he lies about it. And then he screams that this is an attack by the government to recover its stuff, our stuff, the American people's stuff. Trump thinks he's a monarch. He thinks he's like not just the Queen of England who didn't have real power, but like an autocrat. And it, this this whole thing about not leaving the White House just underscores that. So here's something that I don't fully understand. <laughs> I should understand this by now, but explain this to me. This seems like a very, very clear-cut case without clear partisan lines. There's not a liberal versus conservative position here. There's not a Democrat versus Republican fundamental issue here because up until five minutes ago, Republicans seemed to care. Remember when they pretended to care about classified uh, information, things, things like this. And yet here we have Marco Rubio, uh, who was once the future of the Republican Party and is apparently in a somewhat like tighter than expected race for reelection in Florida, spending a lot of political capital and a lot of time carrying water for this particular action. It's not I want to separate this from supporting Trump policies or supporting Trump in some vague general way to satisfy the Republican base. No, he is specifically doubling down on trying to rationalize Trump taking these classified top super secret documents and stuffing them in a closet somewhere in Mar-a-Lago. So here's Marco Rubio. This is really at its core a storage argument that they're making, right? They're arguing there are documents there. They don't deny that he should have access to those documents. What they deny is that they were not properly stored. I don't think a fight over storage of documents is worthy of what they've done. Okay, what the hell? Could you explain why, why does Marco Rubio feel the need to defend this particular conduct. I mean, he could be talking about anything. He'd be talking about inflation. He could be talking about crime. He could be talking about the border. He could be talking about almost anything. What is Marco Rubio's obsession with this particular issue? Well, it's particularly bizarre because Rubio is the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. This is the kind of thing he is exactly not supposed to be deciding, taking a political position on. I think, Charlie, the, it's just as simple as cowardice. Marco Rubio is a coward. It's been quite clear about that from 2016 when he knuckled under to Trump. And so Why didn't he just run away from the issue then? If he's a coward, run away, run away. Don't talk about it. Because Trump wants Republicans to defend him. And there's just tremendous pressure within the party to defend whatever Donald Trump's latest crazy thing is. And this is clearly one of them. And it's the idea that Trump is a victim and the government is jackbooted thugs. So that's what he's doing. It's insane. It's insane that Rubio calls this 
a storage issue and makes light of it. I mean, what was Hillary Clinton doing with her server, but storing stuff in a place that shouldn't be stored? And, and honestly, you know, if somebody comes to your house and like steals your car and you find it in their driveway, is that a storage issue that they stored your car in their driveway? No, it's a theft issue. And that's exactly what's going on with the records at Mar-a-Lago. So speaking of uh, kings and queens, you know, you, you, you mentioned that and uh, Donald Trump actually was joking, apparently, I mean, he's, he's, that he had said that uh, China's president was a king because he was he was president for life and everything. And he, and he keeps bringing up this thing, you know, kings. But the contrast between Donald Trump and actual kings is pretty interesting. Did you read Andrew Sullivan's newsletter at all by any chance? I, I missed this. Okay, so it's and, and again, I I think that you know a- Andrew is going through some things, but he nails this so well. He says it was a coincidence that The Crown, the Netflix uh, show, debuted on U.S. television in November 2016. America had just elected a new president, boorish, unstable, indifferent to rules, contemptuous of the law, with a long history of sexual assault, fraud, and deception. There was no impulse he did not indulge, no cruelty he did not entertain, no tradition he wasn't willing to trash. At the same time, I found myself watching the life of an entirely different head of state, a young, somewhat shy woman suddenly elevated to immense responsibilities and duties in her 20s, hemmed in by protocol, rigified by discipline. The new president could barely get through the day without some provocation, insult, threat, or lie. Elizabeth Windsor, was tasked as a 20-something with a job that required her to say or do nothing that could be misconstrued, controversial, or even interestingly human for the rest of her life. The immense difficulty of this is proven by the failure of almost every other member of her family, including her husband, to pull it off. And then he talks about this. But, you know, it is this interesting moment where the world is looking at Queen Elizabeth, who in so many ways is just the opposite of our modern political culture. And we're taking this moment to sort of say, okay, you know, what made her special? You know, her sense of duty, her sense of dignity, her graciousness, uh, her personal sacrifice, her willingness to put the country before any other agenda. And the entire world is going, this is wonderful. These values are worth cherishing. At the same time that politically it's rushing to embrace people who reject every single one of those values. I guess this is just the paradox of human nature. We have, you know, we, we have the, the brights, we have the, the, the bright side, we have the dark side. And it's weird. I mean, Andrew has written, Andrew Sullivan has written brilliantly about virtue yeah. for decades. It is yes. a subject that he cares deeply about. And it's very important to have virtuous leaders. But Charlie, I'm going to argue the pessimistic side of this question. There are two ways to have a good government. One is to have a virtuous leader like Elizabeth, um, who wasn't actually, didn't actually have power. The other is to have checks and balances, which is the American founders system, right? We, we want to be a government of laws, not of men, because what if the men are bad? And Charlie, I got to admit, I didn't take this that seriously until we had a genuinely really bad man as president. Um, you, you brought up earlier in the conversation, the excellent point about, you know, no one expects Joe Biden to go around firing judges. But I don't want to count on that. Right. I mean, when Obama said, I have a pen and a phone, I got to say, as a liberal, I was like, you go, guy. And then Trump came into power, and I saw what you can do with a pen and a phone and a will to just over, just trample everything. And now, 
I do not want to count on virtue. I want to make sure we right. have checks and balances and a system to protect us from bad men when bad men get elected. And I think that the the founders thought that they had created those checks and balances. And what's been happening now is to realize that, no, they actually were excessively optimistic about human honor because they assumed that you had an honorable person in those roles and that the system would always vet people to make sure that that only honorable people rose into positions of, of power. And obviously that has been flawed. Okay, so let's talk about some other issues that are breaking right now, including one that's very, very, very much in your wheelhouse. I'm looking at uh, the Washington Post's uh, Health 202 newsletter this morning, pointing out that on Capitol Hill and in state legislatures, some Republican lawmakers are backing off aggressive efforts to advance certain hardline anti-abortion measures. In Congress, efforts to pursue a strict nationwide abortion ban have quietly fizzled. There had been some momentum behind pressing for a law banning abortion after fetal cardiac activity is uh, detected. Meanwhile, efforts to pass near total abortion bans in two states devolved into GOP infighting. Lawmakers in South Carolina disagreed over whether they include exceptions for rape and incest, a debate that's put the GOP under an uncomfortable spotlight in a post-Roe America in West Virginia. There was an intra-party battle over whether to remove criminal penalties for doctors. This comes as Republicans are reckoning with a growing backlash to the Supreme Court's ruling. So uh, let's talk about this because, and I'm sorry to use this cliche, but you know, the dog caught the bus and is suddenly realizing that it really wasn't prepared, that for Republican politicians, it was very easy to be pro-life when you uh, didn't have to be specific or or in an era in which nothing you actually said or did would fundamentally make a difference. And now they're confronted with reality. So you've written about this. You've written a whole book about this, Will. What's going on right now? Well, I completely agree with you. The Republican position under Roe v. Wade has been performative. It's been performative because everybody knew Roe was there and none of this mattered. And you could vote for a pro-life politician no matter what the details were about their position because, hey, you're just expressing your you know, pro-life sympathies, your sentiment. It's not about sentiment anymore. It's about what the law will actually do. And as you're pointing out, when you get into the nitty gritty of the law, people get really uncomfortable. Okay, I don't like abortion, but God, do I want to throw doctors in jail? I mean, what was the what exactly was the doctor deciding? Was it an ectopic pregnancy? Was the fetus about to die? Was the you know, it's gets really complicated really fast and those that gets unpopular. So, Charlie, those states that you just named, South Carolina, West Virginia, those are very conservative states. Those are very pro-life states, and it just illustrates how even in places where sympathies run toward against abortion, when we start talking about the details of the law, the pro-life consensus in those states breaks down. It does. And there's also the, I would say, the blast radius of that decision. Um, and we're going to see it playing out in, uh, in, in the Senate in the next couple of weeks, the vote on same-sex marriage codification. This is the critical week for uh, the bill being put together by you know, Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin, Senator Susan Collins. And at first, I almost passed over this because I figured it was the usual suspects, the story about 400 former and current Republican officials signing a letter uh, backing the bill as part of this campaign led by Ken Melman, who uh, people will remember managed George W. Bush's 2004 reelection campaign and was, in fact, RNC chairman for a while. Um, you know, Melman's come out as gay. Um, and he spent years working to convince fellow Republicans to support gay marriage. And so they, they've come up with this list. And again, I said, 
my, my initial reaction was, okay, I, I guess I'm going to know all the names on this list. No, there's not going to be any surprise. But listen to this. Among the signatories to this letter urging the Senate to pass legislation codifying same-sex marriage, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, not a surprise, Dr. Oz, the Republican Senate nominee in Pennsylvania, Joe O'Day, the Republican Senate nominee in Colorado, former First Lady Barbara Bush, the National Association of Manufacturers President and CEO, Jay Timmons, and more than two dozen former Republican senators, representatives, governors, and cabinet members, which would again suggest that on this issue, it is the Republicans that are being splintered rather than the Democrats, which is kind of a reversal on some of what we've seen on these culture war issues in the past. Yes, and it's a reversal from, what was it, 15 years ago or 18 years ago when George W. Bush, Barbara Bush's son, was running for re-election using gay marriage to split the Democrats, right? So the split now goes the other way. And Charlie, I've been looking over the last few days at polling on this question. It's not just Republican elites who have defected, who have gone over to the evil side of same-sex marriage, which happens to be the right side. It is the uh, the Republican electorate as a whole is moving in that direction. By in by some indices on some questions, it is now a majority position inside the Republican Party, inside the Republican electorate to support same-sex marriage. So these politicians on the right who are still dragging their feet and acting like, you know, the party is with them when they stand against same-sex marriage are behind the times. You know, I'm, I'm interested to see what uh, Donald Trump says or does about this, because when he ran in 2016, you might recall, he um, he did not come out against gay rights or against gay marriage, at least if I'm remembering this correctly. But also uh, what we've learned since then, of course, is that uh, Donald Trump never allows any daylight to appear between himself and the most extreme uh, right wing of, of his party. So what position is he going to take on this? Or has he? Well, Have I, I missed it. No, no. I think what's happened, Charlie, is that the right-wing position on sexuality has moved away from homosexuality and it's moved over to trans, right? Yes, right. So Trump's position is like this trans swimmer who's right. like competing against women is, you know, become a ridiculous sports argument and it's just moved away from homosexuality, which I think, you know, like the Russian army fleeing from Kharkiv, the Republicans are fleeing from the issue of same-sex marriage. Well, except that not all of them are. And this vote in the Senate is going to force them to take a position on on homosexuality and gay marriage. You see some of the dynamic with with people like Ron Johnson, who initially said, I, yeah, I see no reason uh, why I wouldn't vote to codify this because, I mean, this is the law of the land right now under pressure from social conservatives here in, in Wisconsin. He's flip flopped on the issue and is going to vote against it, which, by the way, there's a certain irony here because. Conservative Republicans have always argued that major changes like this should be enacted by Congress rather than by the courts. And unless he has fundamental objections to it, codification by legislation would seem to be consistent with conservative views of the constitutional balance of powers. Yeah. And it's an interesting comparison with Roe v. Wade, where there were a lot of conservatives who said they were against abortion, but were happy that they didn't have to face the issue. They would just say, oh, the, the court controls it. Here, oh, I, in the case them, of... Yeah. yeah. So in the case of same-sex marriage, we're kind of in a similar position where there, a lot of Republican elected officials would much rather have the Obergefell decision stand and protect them from this issue than to actually have to face the consequences. 
another story that, that I want to catch up with you on, and I haven't written about it much or, or talked about it, but it's truly extraordinary. Um, in Alaska, Sarah Palin defeated in her bid for Congress, uh, indicating that you know Sarah Palin, who was once such a dominant uh, figure, um, actually, and now we're getting new analyses, you correct me if I'm wrong about this, but new analyses making it very, very clear that Sarah Palin has cost the Republicans a seat in Congress, which again, you know, it's always hard to extrapolate from a special election and from one with ranked choice voting. But just a reminder that these kinds of, you know, toxic celebrity politics that play well in a primary don't play that well in a general election. And Republicans are jeopardizing their electoral chances in a general election. So your thoughts about the fall, at least the temporary fall of Sarah Palin, because she's still on the ballot in November. So this is a comeuppance to Sarah Palin, but I'm actually much more interested in what this means for the whole nature of our politics in general. Yeah. This ranked choice voting in Alaska, you, have, you open the primary, you have ranked choice voting, which basically means that it now matters how many people hate you, right? You, if you, you don't have to be the first choice of everybody if you can be the second choice of enough people. So you get now candidates who are in the middle of the spectrum who are broadly acceptable, you know, more broadly acceptable than someone who could win a traditional Republican primary who's just crazy on the right. And now in a rank choice, the way the rank choice works is the candidate that Sarah Palin beat, Nick Begich, was more broadly acceptable, a Republican. He would have won this race. That's what these data show. Sarah Palin, because she had fewer people who supported her as a whole, lost the race. And what this says to me is, and what it says to the Republican Party, and I hope Democrats and everyone is, nominate candidates, get behind candidates who are more broadly acceptable. Don't go for someone who just satisfies your base. And in a ranked choice system, that will increase the chances that your party wins the election. You would think that that would be perfectly obvious. So one last thing, the controversy continues over uh, Democrats propping up uh, with sort of a wink, wink, uh, propping up the most extreme election denying Republicans in primaries under the assumption that if those candidates win the nomination, they are unelectable in general election. So we saw that in Pennsylvania with Doug Mastriano, who is, um, I just want to remind people, I mean, the guy's nuts, he's crazy, but he is competitive in those, in those races. And yesterday, a vice president, Kamala Harris was on with Chuck Todd and, and Chuck Todd, is grilling her, is trying to pin her down on what do you think of the tactic of Democrats boosting the electoral prospects of these election deniers? And of course, this is relevant today because there's a primary in New Hampshire tomorrow uh, for Senate in which one of the more extreme election deniers has a good chance of winning the Republican nomination. Democrats hope that means that it takes New Hampshire off the table, but nothing is certain these days. So this is the exchange between Chuck Todd and the vice president yesterday morning on Meet the Press. When you see the Democratic Party and some parts of the party funding ads to promote some of these election deniers in primaries, whether it's Michigan, the high profile race there, Illinois, Colorado, New Hampshire, it looks like a cynical, you know, a little bit cynical. And the president went out of his way to say there, there are good Republicans here. Should you leave the good Republicans alone in a primary? Should, is, the, is the Democratic Party making a mistake here by, by you know, those people could win if you're not careful? I mean, listen, I'm not going to tell people how to run their campaigns. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I ran in terms of statewide office. Would you have I done ran, this? I so ran, would you have done this? Is this in your, is this something I, you'd I'm be comfortable I'm not going to tell people how to run their campaigns, Chuck. 
I ran for a statewide, for attorney general, re-election, won both times for Senate, won that race. And I know that it is best to, to, to let a candidate, along with their, their advisors, let them make the decision based on what they believe is in the best interest of their state. Well, <laughs> well, this is classic Kamala Harris. I, I know exactly it, it, what's it going is. on. It, yeah. What's going on in her mind is this is a dangerous question. I'm not sure. I'm kind of cross-pressured. I'm going to try to say nothing. So in saying nothing, she actually said something, which is that she's she's okay with it. She doesn't say so. She's going to defer to the candidate. Right. This is where a little bit of moral clarity would be useful. Yes, would. Stand up, be like Liz Cheney, say it's wrong. I'm against it. I'm willing to sac- you know, I'm willing to sacrifice politically in order to prevent this. I am a negativist. I believe in preventing the worst outcomes. The worst outcome is for election deniers to take over important offices in this country. You have two shots at these people. One is in the Republican primary and the next is in the general election. Do not, in the Republican primary, try to help these people get through the first hurdle, right? Stop them there if you can. Then if they get through it, then you face them in a general election. As one of the idiotic Democrats who, who believed that it was great when Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential nomination because that meant Hillary Clinton yeah. had it in the bag. I have a message to all of you. Do not play with this fire. Well, I, I agree with you completely. And what's interesting is that as, as Joe Biden seems to be moving toward more, more full-throated clarity on these issues, you have this uh, sort of the usual mumble jumbo from uh, Kamala who, I'm sorry, I, and I know I'm opening up a can of whoop-ass here but on myself, but she's just not very good at this. Because you're right on, on number one, you know, a little bit of moral clarity would have been really helpful here. And then number two, she clearly wasn't prepared for the question. Yeah. And it was the most obvious question. Everyone's been getting this Have a talking point, you know? Yeah. And look, I actually like Kamala Harris. I think that Kamala Harris, when she lets herself go, is a terrific speaker. I think the problem is that she is just so afraid. And sometimes when you are trying to, quote, play it safe, you do the wrong thing, the morally wrong thing. If she would just speak what what she believes, I believe that she thinks it is dangerous to do so. And a lot of Democrats think that it is dangerous to do so. Some are, are, some are saying so, and some are ducking the question. And that's just wrong. So what else you wa- are you watching this week? Like you... I I, um, I confess I took my eye off the ball in Ukraine. Um, I am going to be paying a great deal of attention to it. And uh, I will also uh, confess that I'm going to be spending a lot of time just watching the, the pomp and pageantry that's going on in, in Great Britain because it is historic and you and I have never seen this in our lifetime. So I'm, I, I will indulge a little bit of anglophilia. I am weirdly, uh, maybe not weirdly, I just, I have no feelings at all about the queen. I, she seems to be a lovely person, you know, seemed that, you know, a model of virtue, as Andrew Sullivan wrote. I don't have any of this longing of other people to have some, you know, hereditary monarchy uh, representing our national consensus. So, you know, if you are British or if you love the Queen, God bless you. And I am sorry that, that we lost her. And I'm glad that she was a good person. But I'm really grateful to live in a country where we don't live that way. And uh, our country, fractious as it is, uh, it has a better ways to solve these problems than to defer to a royal family. Okay, now, so you, you, since you are a resident expert on Lindsey Graham, I wanted to ask you about this. Um, a week ago, our colleague uh, Amanda Carpenter did a fantastic podcast about Donald Trump's promise to pardon the January 6th uh, rioters and insurrectionists. And uh, people have not listened to it. You need to go back eh, because it is, I mean, she brings the receipts and it is chilling stuff. So The Hill is reporting this morning 
that GOP senators led by, of all people, Lindsey Graham, slammed Trump January 6th pardon promise, former President Trump's promise to grant pardons to rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, is running into strong opposition from Senate Republicans. Senator Lindsey Graham, one of Trump's closest allies, told The Hill that granting pardons to the January 6th protesters is a bad idea. Quote, Pardons are given to people who admit misconduct, rehabilitate themselves. They are not supposed to be used for other purposes. <laughs> Has he been paying attention? Uh, other Republican senators are joining Graham in criticizing Trump's promise to pardon of the protesters is inappropriate. And then Kevin Kramer of North Dakota. I don't think potential candidates should hold pardons out as a promise. It is somewhat problematic, weasel word, for me on a moral and an ethical level. Uh, Senator Mike Rounds, South uh, Dakota, said he wouldn't support granting pardons. If he were elected, he would have a constitutional ability to do it. I would disagree with it. So talk to me about this. Uh, Lindsey Graham, who has, shall we say, swallowed a great deal, um, drawing a line at these uh, pardon promises. What does that tell you? First of all, I, I think there's a misconception about Lindsey Graham and a lot of people like him. Um, the idea is that they will do anything Trump says. And it's not quite that simple. I, uh, Graham has always opposed from the minute that Trump initially talked about pardons, which was before he left office. He was talking about pardoning the January 6th people before we even got to January 20th. And Lindsey Graham said, don't do that. And other Republicans said, don't do that. And you can maybe there was some morality involved in it, but a lot of it, Charlie, was a political strategy. These people, including Graham, wanted to protect Trump politically, and they wanted to bring him back and have him run him for president again in 2024. So this is all part of a campaign to make sure that they can keep Trump separate from the January 6th people, because the story on the right about January 6th is, oh, these bad people broke into the Capitol, but Trump, you know, it wasn't his idea. It wasn't, it wasn't what he wanted. And what these Republicans, elected officials won't do is break with Trump himself. No, and they acknowledge, won't. They won't acknowledge what you obviously know, which is that the reason why Donald Trump keeps talking about pardoning the people who broke into the Capitol is that he supported breaking of into course. the Capitol and he still supports it. Is there any doubt in your mind that in, in Trump 2.0 that he would in fact pardon the rioters? No, no, because he can do it by himself. Exactly. Without check, without balance. Exactly. The pardons are number one on the list of things that the founders allowed into the Constitution on the premise that presidents weren't the worst people in the world. Now that we've had a president who was one of the worst people in the world and could have it again, it's super clear that a unilateral pardon power is extremely dangerous. No, there's no doubt in my mind that he would do it, that he would do it early. And if if the if the case that Lindsey Graham and others are making is that we need to protect Trump from doing something that would hurt him politically, he won't give a shit anymore. I mean, he'll be president. He will never face the voters again. There is no limitation on his pardon, pardon abilities. And I remember, you know, this this seems to have come as a surprise to some people. I was actually on an MSNBC panel and I can't remember exactly who it was. But this was right at the end of the presidency when he was dropping all of these pardons of the various grifters and crooks around him, you know, uh, including Steve Bannon. And the person who was on with me was saying, well, I think this is going to be reviewed afterwards. I think that there's going to be a, a Department of Justice review. And I said, I'm sorry to tell you, because I'm not the lawyer here. I'm not the constitutional expert. But my understanding is there is no review of a president's pardon. It is close to absolute. There is no check on it. Now, I, I understand that people will write in and say, well, you know, if it was done in return for a bribe or some some other uh, sort of thing. But I agree with you. 
um, as much as I hesitate to talk about flaws uh, in the Constitution, this was one. And, and at the time, it was debated. There were people like George Mason, I believe, who were pointing out the real danger of giving this kind of royal power to the president. Um, and people decided they were going to go with a more optimistic view. But here we're at, and there's not the slightest doubt in my mind that Trump would do exactly what he is promising to do with the pardons and, frankly, with the firing of any government official who shows any independence or any lack of direct loyalty to him personally. He will fully intend to do that, and I do think that he'll have a lot of support in the Republican Party, which will not be in a mood to resist him if he is returned to office. Yeah, and it's bizarre that Graham and others are pleading with Trump not to do this. I mean, you don't plead with someone who has demonstrated over five or six years that he is an authoritarian. You don't say, hey, don't do that authoritarian thing. What you do, first of all, is make sure the authoritarian is never in power again. And secondly, you change the institutions. We clearly need institutional changes because Trump is not the last guy who's going to get close to this office, unfortunately, who might do this sort of thing. Now that he's paved the way, I think others will try to follow. And we absolutely need to change the system to prevent that. Okay. So this is a crucial point. I'm sorry, we, we saved this to the very, very end of it. This is a crucial point that there will be others and they will be emboldened uh, to take these kinds of actions, which is why I think it is so risky not to hold Donald Trump legally accountable. I understand we've had this debate here internally in the bulwark about whether it is risky to charge the president. And of course, there's tremendous risks in charging a former president. But I think that the precedent created by saying, you know what, presidents, even presidents who have lied to the public, who have betrayed their oath, who orchestrated an attempted coup, should not be held legally accountable. That would be the deadliest precedent going forward because 50 years from now, 30 years from now, we might have a president who is looking at this going, you know, under normal circumstances, I would not be able to get away with this. But with my pardon power and with the precedents established that you can't charge a sitting president or a former president, basically, fuck it. I'm going to do what I want. And who's going to tell me no? Okay, I will argue the other side of this question. I agree with you that Trump committed crimes and that he should be prosecuted for them, but I don't think it's necessary to prosecute him in order to prevent a, a repeat of this. No, I, I think that it's, okay, no, I think man. it is much more important to say, let's look, let's go through, let's itemize the stuff that Donald Trump did that undermined and endangered the American system of government that broke laws, and let's Trump-proof our government. So, the pardon power. Change the pardon power. It should no longer be unilateral. The electoral wait, count. Wait, 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 wait. How do you change the pardon power? I'm just telling you that this is the, uh, this is the- This is the Will Salatin. If we, <laughs> we could have a ham sandwich if we just had some ham and some bread. I, <laughs> you, you couldn't, Charlie, you couldn't even prosecute him for the pardons. I know that, but I mean, all the, I'm, and I'm not talking about prosecuting him for the pardons, but- you're suggesting that in order to change the pardon power, you have to change the Constitution, which is not going to be happening. I'm just telling you what we should do. We, we, we need to change. We need to fix holes in our system, loopholes that are based on the premise of virtue. I agree with you. But also the way that you do that is by enforcing the laws that you have now and not create more loopholes like the former president cannot be prosecuted. Okay. That's the I, ultimate I, loophole. 
Right. Well, that that is obviously we should prosecute someone when they violate the law, even if they're a former president. But uh, I was just going to say, not just pardons, the Electoral Count Act I reform. That totally is a change. Agree with you. We we are making a change. That one doesn't require change in the Constitution, but the act was premised on the president not being an authoritarian. The declassification, the rules around declassification, clearly it's extremely dangerous to have a president have as much power over declassification as he presently has. So we have to figure out some way to distribute power over that, obviously a limited extent, to prevent abuse of that. And there, we can just go down the list. So my argument to you is great to prosecute Trump. He deserves it. But short of that, there are a lot of changes we can make in the system to prevent the next authoritarian from doing what Trump did. Why well, I agree. But I do think that also the rule of law does not exist if the rule of law is not enforced. And so we can have all those laws, but unless we're willing to pull the trigger to enforce those laws, it's a pointless exercise. I agree with you. And by the way, I would add to your list of, of pieces of legislation that ought to be considered is strengthening civil service protections. You know, we either believe in that or we don't. Because I think this is going to be a big issue for Republicans in 2024, that they will be all in in having the president fire thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of government employees at will. Uh, this was something that we thought we had resolved back in the 1880s, but apparently not. And perhaps uh, this would be a good moment to make it you know, absolutely clear that the president does not have the unilateral power to fire all of these aides. But again, if we don't take action now, this will be the precedent. If you don't charge Donald Trump for X, how can you charge president whatever 30 years from now for whatever it is that, that he does? And I think that that's crucial. And again, I, my caveat here is, of course, you let the evidence has to be strong. Uh, the law has to be clear. The Department of Justice has to be absolutely confident that they can win a conviction. But if they do, I don't think that they, they can afford to blink at this point. But I agree with you about all the other stuff to uh, try to Trump-proof the uh, Constitution. And I'll agree with you about enforcement, because uh, as conservatives have long argued, if you don't stand behind it, if you don't put the force of government behind it, uh, all of the moral pleading in the world won't make a difference. Okay, so let's let's end at this moment of radical agreement, uh, Mr. Salatin, and we will do this next week, too. Deal? Deal. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.